Okay, in, in case you have like a bad attitude of like how long I'm going, I'm starting my clock now. That was all just kind of like, hey, here's what's going on around the world. But now, now like Ephesians is open. Boom, timer on. Might have to recalibrate a little bit. Cleanse your palate of your mind right now. Okay, so Paul, when he meets with the Ephesian elders, probably around the time that he writes his letter, not, it, it, it's in the, the same time frame, within probably four or five years, he meets with them in Acts chapter 20. And in verse 24, he says something really interesting to them. He says that, I wanted to complete the task that was allotted to me. And it's a big one. It was the task of preaching the gospel of the grace of God. And, you know, there's that scene of Paul on the beach with the elders. And the last thing he's going to say to them, and he said, this is the most important thing that I want to get done and get through and instill in you. The gospel of the grace of God. Now we hear that and we're like, yeah, cool. I'm on that. I like that. I like gospel. I like grace. I like God. But it's more than I think we, we really appreciate or understand. And they're religious words. But the danger of religious words is that we just let them bounce off us like so many BBs off a tank. Rather than really decide, let's step back and see if we can really get the depth of the gospel of the grace of God. And what many who have studied the New Testament really look at more than any other passage in the New Testament is what we're about to read. Verses 1 through 10 of this second chapter as Paul addresses this church with whom he is so dear. And, and to them, he says these words. And let's read it together. By me saying let's read it together, I don't mean that you're going to read it out loud with me. But you can read along quietly. Silently would be even better. And I'll read it aloud. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's a bleak picture. As a matter of fact, the uh, original language basically says we were children of wrath. That's quite a contrast to what it said earlier in chapter 1, where we're now adopted. We're children of God through Christ. But before that amazing disruption of our lives, we were children of wrath. And we were under bondage to the world, verse 2, to the devil, verse 2, and to the flesh. Verse 3, the world, the devil, and the flesh, and only getting deeper and deeper into our mess. And it's a bleak picture, but there's a pivot point here. And the pivot point begins in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Let me pause here. The NIV doesn't do the doubling up of what is in many other translations. What is really said here is a piling on for the effect of you knowing that there is love, love, love going on here with God that should not be missed. And what is literally said here, because of his great love with which he loved you. 
So it's great love, and he's loving you up with that love, love, love that he's got there. Just to make no mistake about it. And the pivot point is all about a God who has set his affections dearly and squarely upon you. He's rich in mercy and he made us alive together with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. And then, emphatically, it is by grace you have been saved. That's a little kind of peek at what's going to come later. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's just reiterating what was said as Paul was just kind of waxing poetic and, and uh, theological back in chapter 1. When he said that power is the same power that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. So what happened to Christ? Because you're now in Christ. When you got, went from dead in sin to alive in Christ, you didn't just go from dead, nasty, disgusting, uh, de decomposing corpse to be made alive. You are made alive, but you were then exalted to the heavenly realms, seated with Christ at the right hand of God. In order that, verse 7, that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Not just so that he would show his grace, not just so that he would show the riches of his grace, but that he would show the piling on incomparable riches of his grace. I'm emphasizing all this because if I don't, these are just religious words that are like, ding, 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 right? They don't make their way through. They don't. They don't to me. And, 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 and they won't to us unless we really allow this to, to really be appropriated in our heart and our head. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. I got two main points today. Um, but before I get into them, I just want to make sure that the gospel of the grace of God is delineated just a little bit here so that we're not missing the, the emphasis of what is different about us from all other peoples under the sun in the history of all time. Because every other relationship with something transcendent, Islam, Buddhism, which is the, the, the main religion of Sri Lanka, uh, Hindu, you, you pick it, Shinto, any of that, every single one of them, if you perform, then you'll get approval. Every single one. My son Caleb is in a world history class right now in high school, and the teacher is taking them through not just world history, but you know, you've got to cover religions of the world too, it's always a big part. And, and the teacher has basically said, you know, all, 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 all these religions, but they're all kind of basically the same. You know, they, they all you know, worship a God. They all meet together. They all make sacrifice of, of, of different things to be able to honor that God. They all try to align themselves along the values that that God appropriates as being uh, according to his will. And, and he went on with this of trying to show how all religions are essentially the same. Bunk, 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 bunk. There's nothing more insulting than to in any way equate Christianity with 
Hinduism, Islam, uh, with, with Buddhism, because Christianity does something radically different from all of those. It is so radically different that it flips this upside down, and this is what it does. In Christianity and Christianity only, God looks at you, Jonathan, and says, You are my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And he gives you acceptance and approval and embrace up front, trusting that his overwhelming love and his kindness and his mercy will have the intended effect that you end up aligning yourself with joy rather than duty to the right way of living. No other religion has ever done that. Why? Because they're not true. And I, I want this to, to be clear because it's so easy in this book. And I'm going to say something that's going to make you squirm. Only Christianity is true. And all the other religions don't have, well, they have a nice piece of it. And maybe all together we can learn from them all. And, and we get a better, you know, more rounded out holistic picture of God. No, every other religion is of the devil. <laughs> Buddhism is satanic. Muslim Islam is satanic. Hinduism, satanic. Shintoism, satanic. You're not comfortable right now. I'm not either. I'm not. Why? Because my, my culture rails against me saying something like that. But my Bible doesn't. And by the way, if all of those things are a possible way to connect to God, well then we worship the most horrific monster God that could ever be imagined. Because if Islam is a way to God, or Buddha is a way to God, or uh, you, you pick it, Shinto is, 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 well, they don't have a God in Shinto, but, but, but if any of those ways are, are a way to ultimate enlightenment, well, then God would never do it Jesus' way. To have his own son butchered, mercilessly, defiled and humiliated and slaughtered, to show how much he hates sin and how much he loves us. What kind of God would do that if you could just do the Muhammad thing? Or if you could just do the Buddha thing? You never would do that. Ever, ever, ever. And so, is it so wrong for Jesus to say that I am the way, the truth, and the life? And no one gets to the Father except through me. After what it is that he does for us. If he doesn't say that, then we ought to think that he is totally out to lunch. Because if there's another way, what are you doing that for? You got a martyr complex? Odd thing to say to Jesus. Get a Messiah complex. But it's not a complex. It's the truth. Jesus lived the life that we should live, but he also paid the penalty we owe. And he did it in our place. We're not reconciled to God as we sit here through our efforts or our record as in every other religion. But through his efforts and his record. And if we trust in Christ for our acceptance in God rather than in our own moral character, in our commitment, in our performance, in our fruitfulness, 
Well, then we get to realize something really amazing. We are more flawed and sinful than we ever dared believe. And yet we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope at the same time. That's the gospel. But without that unique understanding of a gift covenant, then religions have to paint God as either a demanding holy God who is placated by backbreaking moral effort, or what C.S. Lewis calls God, a senile old benevolence who tolerates everyone no matter how they live. The problem is if I think I have a relationship with God because I'm living morally according to his standards, it doesn't move me to the depths to think of my salvation and to think of the gift covenant. When I get into a duty mindset, it only promotes more of a duty mindset. And the awe and the wonder and the kindness of God is lost on me. Ephesians 2 blows all of that up. And as we consider these two questions, I hope in the end, we come away with a little bit of a deeper appreciation, ultimately a full appreciation of the gospel of the grace of God. And what Ephesians 2 answers is why is it, despite the fact that you are dead in your sin, transgressions and sins, you are enslaved to the thinking of your mind and the mess of your flesh and the cravings of your lusts and your desires, why is it in your defiled, sullied, nasty, repulsive state that God would save you? And that's my first point. Why did God save me? Well, because I needed saving. And that's why he uses the word save here. It's, I mean, it's the idea that you're in a mess. And you're not just down the well with Lassie barking for your salvation. You are, you are in a, a wretched state. Well, the, the way that, that I kind of answer this question of why, I use the kind of the mnemonic of why, of W-H and Y, of why it is that God saved me. I am wretched, I am helpless, and probably most condemning of all, I am yawning. Yawning. Somebody in the first service thought I said yearning. I was like, no, if you're yearning, then you actually might have something to boast about, about why God saved you. I wasn't yearning. I was yawning at God. I had it going on. I was having fun. People didn't have a fulfilled life like I had. And, and despite the fact that I was a wretch and I was helpless and God was making disruptions and interventions at every turn, I was like, yeah, it's nice. Not thrilling, but nice. And praise God that he persisted and ramped it up and brought the two by four that was finally effective enough to disrupt my life. But this is what we're, we're depicted as in verses one through three. Wretched, helpless, and yawning. Right out of God who's offering his love with all that he's got. But why did he save you? It just comes down to this. He loves you. And it doesn't make any sense. And, and he didn't save you because of a moment like this. Where you got your Bible open. Well, maybe you do now because I mentioned it. 
You're singing songs about Jesus. You're hugging one another. He, he saved you for your wretched, helpless, indifferent moments. He saved you at that point of ridiculous, sinful extravagance. There's a story that's been in the news a lot lately about a man who needs saving. Um, and you, you may, have, may have seen it, but in May of 2014, a U.S. special operations team in a Black Hawk helicopter landed in the hills of, es of uh, Afghanistan. And waiting for the, the, the team were a, a band of about a dozen Taliban fighters, and with them, a tall American named Bo Bergdahl. He was pale, emaciated, out of sorts. And it's because for five years, almost exactly, he had been in what amounted to a little steel cage as a prisoner of the Taliban. And now he was being saved. He was being ransomed by the power of the United States government. And having been saved, having been ransomed, having been brought home, having been reunited with his family, President Obama, days later, announced Bergdahl's return in the Rose Garden, and Bo's parents were right there by his side. His hometown of Haley, Idaho, planned a big celebration to welcome him back. And it looked as though this was an amazing story of amazing redemption. But the story is even more like your story of salvation. Because you might think that, well, he was a prisoner of war. And, you know, he was just caught in action. That's not what happened. He was a deserter. The men in his platoon called him not only a deserter, but a traitor. And he walked away from his band of brothers. And he deserted because his attitude uh, was, was such of bitterness that he wasn't going to uh, align himself in, any longer with those that were with him. Now, you can have your political issue and all that, but, but you, you can't in that moment put all of your brothers in arms at risk uh, for this. And, and I, I'm not even, I don't even care about the political statement right now. I'm just looking at the analogy that will help us to be able to see the need of our rescue. But even though, even though his brothers in arms in the paper right away all, all recognize that, no, 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 you don't know the full story of this guy. Even if he was a traitor, and even if he was a deserter, the analogy wouldn't work if we were to understand grace. He would have to be a rapist. And a pedophile. And a murderer. He would have to have stolen from the young mothers that the U.S. Army was working with in the villages. And lined his pockets with their few dollars that they had. He would, he would have to have beaten their children. He, he would have to be a liar. He would have to be addicted to pornography. And kind of every moment that he got off of duty to just kind of using up whatever bandwidth they had there to indulge in the lusts of his eyes. And then after all of that, become 
the deserter and the traitor that he was if we're to in any way make that equated with what Ephesians 2 is talking about. And on the flip side of it, when he came home, hours after the announcement in the Rose Garden, the full story started to come out. Haley, Idaho, canceled its celebration. The army launched launched an investigation. And then in March of, of 2014, the military charged Bergdahl with two crimes, one of which carries the possibility of a life sentence. And that's what he's doing right now. But if this were our story of grace, we would be so much more wretched than he. And even after all of that came out, after the rescue and the ransom and the saving that was done for us to take us out of that cage and be brought back into family, we would then, if it were to look like this, look like the story of Jesus, then you would then have to be taken from the Rose Garden to Lower Manhattan where there would be a ticker tape parade in your honor and tears flowing from the host of celebrations of all that looked at the fact that you had been redeemed and the grace of God had had its intended effect on you. And more than any besides that would be Jesus the Son standing at the end of that procession in ovation for you, commending you, and God the Father saying, this is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. That's the gift covenant that we have in Christ. And what did you contribute to it? Nothing but wretchedness. What was your power to help you out of it? Nothing, just helpless. And what was your response the first time it was offered to you? Yawning. Nothing of us in any way commends us to the grace of God. That's the power of this passage. It's God in his love for us, loved us, rich in his mercy, and made us alive even when we were dead in our sins. And now, as you sit here right now, the heavenly host, the angels, look on you with joy in their hearts, with commendation. You are in Christ. And in Christ you have all the benefits conferred upon you that we've already read about in Ephesians. In Christ, you are elected and chosen. You're not random, you're special. You are adopted. You are his son. With full benefits. And an inheritance that comes with that as well. His son, whom he loves. His daughter, whom he loves. That's who you are. And with you, he is well pleased. Not of yourself, but because you're in Christ. Sounds unfair, but that's the way it works. You've been ransomed. You've been marked with the Holy Spirit. You have a hope that is unshakable. You have an inheritance that once it is revealed in the age to come, only then, the Bible says, will you be able to then grasp the kindness of Jesus Christ. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
I think only when the new heaven and the new earth, when Jesus returns, the sky rolls up like a scroll, when we're entered into that new age, only then will we get like, wow, I thought I got it with Jesus. But oh my goodness, your kindness has just swept through me like a warm wave of amazement. And all I can do is tremble now that I realize what I didn't appreciate. You are so kind and I get to see your face and I have fellowship with you. That's what awaits us. And not only that, power. Power of the Holy Spirit. Power that raised Jesus from the dead. A power that once we decide to exercise it in the way that Jesus did, for the common good, for selfless causes, only then, I think, will we be able to appreciate what it is that we were always meant to be and what it is that we're always meant and able to do. Why did God save you? It's your mess, and He loves you. And that's meant to have an effect for now. Because there's days now where you think, oh, you know what? I didn't evangelize this weekend. I skipped three quiet times in the last four days. Well, if he chose you and he loved you when you were completely wretched, helpless, and yawning, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Or are you instead still trusting in the grace that he has offered to you? The covenant is still the covenant. It's a gift covenant. And so it, do all you want. It's not getting you anything. But trust, trust, trust in the gift that I have offered you. And the gift that I have indeed given you. And then you'll know that fire in your belly. That stoking of the engine room. That boiler of your soul. As Jeremiah says, it's like a fire within my bones. I can't hold it in. Like, what can I do about this? But, but if all you have is duty, well then maybe you've never really appreciated the depth of the grace of God. And by the way, that's me. I think I'm like a hundred times better at duty than I am at again and again and again understanding the gospel of the grace of God. You know what I'm good at? Bible says do that. I'm going to do it. I did it. I'm a man. More people need to just step up. Do right. What in the world? Shake off that weakness. And that's been my Christianity. And it's not like it's joyless. Because there are alignment with the will of God. And, and there are blessings of obedience. But how much more? If I trusted in the covenant... Rather than trusted in my performance. Yeah. And that's what this passage is trying to help open our eyes to. We're far from this. Super far from it. Our, our LTP, which got canceled because of the snow, was going to kind of bring this thing home to us at every level. How is it that we can trust in the covenant as we preach, as we disciple one another, as we lead Bible talks, even as we have our own quiet times? Yeah. And we'll get to that and just trust it. We're on a journey together as a church. We stink at this. We're good at a lot of things. We can preach discipleship. We can preach repentance. We can get after obedience and duty. We love community and we get after all of that. I would say we're world class in a lot of those things. You are expert in discerning godly sorrow from worldly sorrow. You can smell it from two rooms away. And as a result, great things have happened. What if 
we decided to become world class at the gospel of the grace of God. Wow. What if we all had that kind of engine room stoked at, at, at top boiler speed, really driving us forward rather than a trying harder, dutiful approach to obedience? But just being like overwhelmed, why wouldn't I? Praise God. Now, why did he save me? But the other issue is, how? How did he save me? Because if you don't have a confidence in how it is that he saved you, all these whys may seem awesome, but does it apply to me? Like, I don't know. It's Stefan, yeah, probably him, but me? I don't, I don't know. It's awesome. Paint a beautiful picture. I like that. But I may not even have this. Well, how did God save me? Here's what's interesting about what we're studying this year. We're studying Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians because they're all written at the same time by Paul. And two of these letters have a tremendous amount of overlap. And there are two churches that were really close to one another, Ephesus and, and Colos. And Colossae. And in the letter to the Colossians, he writes words that we see in verse 5. So look right, right here in verse 5 again. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now I'm going to go to the ESV on this. And I want to show you an astounding parallel. And this phrase, dead in our transgressions, made alive with Christ, is very profound. But it only occurs in two places in all of scripture. And the wording in the original language is almost word for word as it goes through here. Besides the, the, the additions of, of uncircumcision that's put in Colossians. So here's, here's what it reads in, in Ephesians 2.5. Uh, when we were dead in our trespasses, may, he, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then of course Colossians 2, listen to this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven all our trespasses. It's an astounding amount of overlap, but the reason why this is so important is that the how is incorporated quite clearly in Colossians 2. And by how, I mean, what happens when, when this transaction occurs, when the grace of God is really just kind of lavished upon you, how does that happen? Does it happen because God sends a, a bolt out of the blue and he happens to strike you and you're receptive at the moment? Is it because the preacher asks you to come forward down the sawdust trail of an altar call and come here now and just really pray Jesus into your heart, accept Jesus into your heart, accept him as your personal Lord and Savior? And if you accept him, well, then all of these blessings are then conferred upon you. Is that the way that it happens? You would think that it is because like 98% of all churches do it exactly that way. But what does the Bible say? And it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Because it speaks to whether we're going to walk around with security or whether we're going to walk around a little bit squirrely and squishy about something as massive as the gospel of the grace of God. Well, so look at this. Again, dead in our trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him. How does that happen? Well, in Colossians, we just have to look at the very previous verse. Here it is, 12 and 13 together. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. How do we go from dead in sin to alive in Christ? Well, the same way that Christ went from dead in sin to alive, alive in him. Don't you hate when you're praying and you, and you say, you know, and, and God, you know, uh, you know we, we really love the kingdom of God. Oh, I mean, your kingdom. Well, I was kind of stepped in that right now. But anyway, uh, but how do you go from dead in sin to alive in Christ? Well, here's what the Bible says. Once you're buried in baptism, dead in sin, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the powerful working of God. It's because we've decided to trust in the gift covenant and receive the gift covenant the way that he tells us to receive it, that we can have security. We don't have to make up some sort of a, please, Jesus, come into my heart. Say it louder. More tears. Come on, more emphasis. Maybe then you'll feel like it happened to you. That's the way most people go about it. It's almost like works, isn't it? Because you got now you now you've gotten there. Or how about just surrendering over to trusting in the gift covenant and receiving it the way the gift has been asked to be received? And how is it when you're dead in sin? Well, when you're dead in sin, you're buried with Christ in baptism, the passage says. And then, because of your faith, just as Christ was raised, you too are raised to new life. And in that raising of new life, it's not just new life that's conferred upon you, but it's, of course, the forgiveness of your sins. It's the justification of God. It's the receipt of the Holy Spirit. Everything else that the Bible talks about in connection with this. But here's the beauty of this. It's so experiential and clear and certain and secure. And that's why God, I think, does it this way. is because there's no mistaking whether this has happened or not. I got a lot of bad days. In my Christian walk. But I don't ever doubt on March 17th of 1993. That I was buried with Christ in baptism. And raised with him to new life. And speaking of this. Isn't it bizarre? If not completely illogical. Nay stupid. I try to throw a nay in every sermon when I can. (laughs) Nay stupid. To say. Well you know here's here's my story of, of baptism. What happened is I came forward and I prayed Jesus in my heart and, and suddenly I felt a, an enlivening and God made me alive. And I went from dead in sin to alive in Christ. And then the next logical thing that you do to someone who's been made alive is then bury them. <laughs> what is that? It's when Jesus was dead in sin. It's when we are dead in sin that we are buried in baptism. And then, as Christ was raised to new life, we are raised to new life. I'm not trying to be like, you know, some sort of, you know, picky, uh, you know, hair splitter here in, in this situation. But there's a lot at stake. There's the security of knowing, did I do it God's way? And can I walk around excited that this grace has been appropriated to me? And I'm going to have no doubts about it. And I want to run through walls for the sake of Jesus because I know what it is that I have been given. God sets it up that way. Don't corrupt it. And don't think that there's a new way or a more convenient way. And by more convenient way, I don't mean like a barrel on a roof versus the ocean. I mean, 
just bow your head right now, raise your hand with me, and I'm sure a lot of you out there are having financial difficulties, oh, some of you have had fights with your kids, probably got a spouse, you think that there's no way out of it. There's a list of seven things that would apply to every single person in the audience, and what those preachers do is just manipulate those basic things, and then say, okay, and if any of you are really, you know, then you know what you do, just trust in Jesus, and he'll come into your heart, and just pray with me right now, Jesus will just come into my heart, be with me, eat with me, and I with you, and if you've prayed this prayer, you are now saved in Christ. Garbage. Garbage. I call shenanigans. Not in the Bible. The one verse that seems close to it is completely out of context of it. And why go through all of that when we've got it here in Scripture? It's not a work that you do. It's just receiving the gift the way they want. All these passages talk about is not a work that, that, that could be done. Ugh. So anyway. If that's the case, if that's the case for you, don't let anything, don't let Satan whisper or accuse you that this is not who you are. You are a new creation. You're no longer dead in sin. You're no longer trying to gain anything through performance. You are the child of God. You've already been commended by God. You're the apple of his eye. Yeah, you'll have bad days. So do all of our kids, but we're not kicking them to the curb. God loves you dearly. He's given you his Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing and sealing you for the day of redemption. If you've been born of water and spirit, that is yours to claim and that is yours to walk in and that is yours to celebrate because you know the gospel of Jesus. Now, finally, why did he save me? How did he save me? And finally, now that you get all that, now God wants you to do as you please. You're like, I was with you up until this point. <laughs> now you sound like that TV preacher guy. <laughs> now, you are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. The beauty of the new gift covenant is that you get to do what you want. But what you want is now pleasing to God. God trusts that that's the case. He's like, if you really allow yourself to understand grace, then this will happen 100 times out of 100. That what you want is suddenly now not the cravings of your flesh, not following the world and the ruler of this kingdom, it is, it, it is not the enslavement of, of all that dogged you before. Now what you want is higher, more glorious, more, more um, in alignment with, more holy and, and righteous, in alignment with the will of God. As an illustration to this, there was a husband and a wife. They didn't really love each other. The man was very demanding and exacting. So much so that he prepared a list of rules and regulations for his wife to follow. You know, in every, um, it seems like in every marriage, and I'm painting with broad strokes here, there's one spouse who's kind of ADD and another spouse who's kind of OCD. And... 
And usually the ADD spouse apologizes a lot, and the OCD spouse has got to deal with bitterness a lot. But I often remind Deb, you should be glad that I'm the ADD spouse. Because if I were an OCD spouse, then I'd be like, all right, let me get out the white glove. Let's see how the house is doing. Like, you're annoyed with me now? Oh, my goodness. I could be a whole lot more annoying if I got my act together. <laughs> so anyway, I had a story to tell. So he, he, he put together this whole list of, of rules and regulations for his wife to follow. Matter of fact, he insisted that she read them over every day and obey them to the letter. And among his list of, of do's and don'ts uh, were, were such things and details as what time she should get up, when his breakfast should be served, how the housework should be done, and at what exacting standards. And she went after it. But after several long years, long years, her husband died. And as time passed on, the woman ended up meeting and falling in love with another man. And, and he really did love her dearly. They, they were married. And the husband did everything he could to make his new wife happy, continually showering her with tokens of his affection and appreciation and, um, and commending her. And one day... As, as, um, as she was cleaning the house, she found, tucked away in a drawer, the list. The list of commands her first husband had drawn up for her. And as she looked it over, it dawned on her that even though her, her, her present husband hadn't given her any kind of list, she was doing everything her first husband's list required anyway. She realized she was so devoted to this man that her deepest desire was to please him out of love and not out of obligation. But do you trust that? Do you trust that the gospel has that power? And until we can trust that the gospel has that power, we're never going to be able to be good at grace. And to trust that, yes, he saved you, you know why, you know how, but now... He wants you to go ahead and do as you please. But the power of the gospel is, you're going to please him. Amen. Amen.